Let's pray together. Father, God, we thank you that you are the way maker. For Lord, there is nothing that is too hard for you. There is nothing that is beyond your outstretched arm. For Father, you are mighty to save. You are mighty to rescue. You are mighty to cleanse. You are mighty to forgive. You are mighty to set free. You are mighty to protect. You are mighty to empower us to walk through the trials and the tribulations of life. You are God. And beside you there is no other. You are the God of gods. You are the Lord of lords. You are the King of kings who has made yourself known in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. For he is our atoning sacrifice. Apart from him, we are nothing. We have nothing to offer but unclean hands and wicked hearts that are in need of your regenerating grace. Your supernatural transformation. Lord, I pray this day that you will make much of yourself. I pray, God, that you will open up your word and teach us, Father. Speak to us that we might be more like Christ. Lord, I pray, as I always pray, that God, you do help us to see and you help us to hear. And that God, you would plant your word deep, deep within our hearts. Lord, it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen and amen. Well, take your Bibles and turn again to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter number 5. We have begun working our way through the Beatitudes. And today is no different. We call it Mother's Day. That's why we celebrate our mothers. We have recognized and prayed for you and given you a little bitty gift and, and are so thankful for you. But um, I can't depart where we are in the scriptures this morning. And so I want to read the Beatitudes as a whole together, and then we'll camp out where we're going to camp out this morning. But beginning in verse 2, it says, And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. 
Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and other all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is God's Word. Now, we're going to be focusing on that second beatitude this morning in verse 4. But before we do... Let me me remind you of why we are where we are. Jesus, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Beatitudes being sort of the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, then Jesus, towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 7, He tells us some very sobering truths about church environments about religious environments. He says these words, you know them. I've quoted them many times. In verse 21 of chapter 7, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day many will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name? And do many works in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, that's not my personal opinion. That's Jesus. And when Jesus speaks, Jesus speaks truth. And Jesus just sent a lightning bolt through the religious crowd of that day. Especially those Pharisees that might have been among them that thought because we have the law of God, because we teach in the synagogues, because we, we, we profess to know the one true God, that, that, that surely if anyone is guaranteed heaven, it is us. And Jesus just said, Many, many, not a few, many on that day were going to be in for a shock. That day referring to the great day of judgment. There were many that were going to be in for a shock. And so because of the reality that Jesus sets forth, we have gone to the Beatitudes because I suggested to you that the Beatitudes help to clarify where there is authentic Christianity and where there is fake Christianity. You say, how is that? Remember I told you that the Beatitudes, Jesus is describing for us the heart, the character of those that belong to the kingdom of heaven, that belong to the kingdom. That's why, and I told you, 
just to remind you, I'm not just pulling this out of a hat. Jesus said, he starts off with the first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Emphasis in the Greek, theirs and theirs only is the kingdom of heaven. And then he ends the main beatitudes, wraps them up with the same statement. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted. And he says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's called inclusion. He's setting off everything that he's saying from that first beatitude to that last beatitude. Everything that he is saying is about those who belong to the kingdom of heaven. And if you belong to the kingdom of heaven, there will be something of these character traits true in your life because God's grace has touched your heart. Now, I told you there's no perfect model of them other than Jesus. And Jesus doesn't have to model all of these because some of them don't apply to him because he's perfect, right? He's not a sinner. Not at all. So all of them wouldn't apply to him. But these are true wherever God's grace has touched the heart. And so we begin our journey. The Lord, I, I think, follows a logical path. And we begin our journey with blessed are the poor in spirit. That is, blessed are those, happier those, approved of those who realize that they are absolutely have nothing to offer God spiritually. They are poor. That's talking that word there, potokos in the Greek. It's referring to abject poverty. Have nothing to offer. And that's the beginning of true salvation. That's the beginning of interest to the kingdom of heaven. Of realizing you have nothing to offer. I have nothing to offer. We're helpless before God. And today we pick up in verse four. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they and they only shall be comforted. And those who mourn are also part of those and only those for whom the kingdom of heaven is for. So what does this mean? What's he, what's he talking about here? There are three main things that I would extract in the context of verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And the first thing I want to make sure that we understand is I want us to understand the meaning the meaning of mourning. What's he talking about here? Well, I'll tell you what he's not talking about. He's not saying, happy are those, approved are those, who walk around all day long, and they're grim, and they're cheerless, and they have no joy. That is not what he's saying. Now, some of you, I think, must take it to mean that. I see the expressions on your face. I'm, I'm just kidding. Okay. That's not what, that can't be what that means because we also know the scripture teaches us that the joy of the Lord is our strength. 
But I would suggest to you, before we can know the joy that is our strength, we must be experiencing whatever he's talking about here when he says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. So what are, what are we talking about here? What does it mean to be happy, approved? Those who mourn. What does it mean? What is this mourning over? Well, in the context of what we're talking about here, Jesus is talking about those who mourn, those who are brokenhearted, those who are grieved over sin. Those who are broken, those who are grieved, grieved over sin. I mean... It's logical that he would go here next because we've already talked about how we're absolutely helpless because of our sinfulness. We have nothing to offer God. Nothing. And so because of our helpless estate, because we are poor in spirit, it should bring us to a place where we're experiencing this brokenheartedness, this grief over our sin. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 10 when Paul talks about godly sorrow. There is a godly sorrow that we should experience over our sin. A God-centered sorrow. A sorrow over the fact that we have grieved our God. A sorrow over the fact that our sin offends God. A sorrow over the fact that our sin crucified the Lord of glory. And that should break our hearts. And this kind of mourning is a beautiful thing. It is an absolutely beautiful thing. To come to the place where you see the sinfulness of your sin. It should be a disturbing place to be. An uncomfortable place to be. But it is a beautiful place to be. Isaiah the prophet said of the mission of our Lord Jesus Christ. He said these words. Talking about, and Jesus quoted Isaiah saying these of himself, where he said, He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom to the captives, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. I want you to think about what Jesus said. Guys, brokenness hurts. Helplessness and hopelessness stings. The mourning is painful. The grief over sin at times can seem almost unbearable. But it leads to freedom. It leads to beauty. It leads to gladness. It leads to a place of praise. None of which would be experienced had there not been the broken hardness and the mourning and the grieving that Jesus quoted of him, talking about whom he came to minister to, quoting from Isaiah. This is absolutely 
essential. And I want you to understand this morning when I talk about mourning over sin and being disturbed over sin and grieving over sin, I'm not just talking, I'm not talking about mourning over the consequences of sin. Yes, the consequences should disturb you. But I'm not talking about that. If, if all you are worried about is consequences, that is worldly sorrow. Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, next verse, verse 11, talks about this thing called worldly sorrow that leads to death. And so that kind of sorrow, that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about, sure, you're disturbed over the consequences, but more so you're disturbed over how your sin affects holy God. How it grieves holy God. That is a shaking encounter. I ask you, have you ever been shaken to the core over the sinfulness of sin in you? Chuck Colson said this about confronting our own sin. He said, truly confronting our sin is a devastating experience. He goes on to say, and I quote him, If it was really preached, people would flee our church pews and never to return. End quote. The modern church doesn't seem to want to face the heaviness of our own sin. We, it seems, tend to think, well, I go to church just to hear a positive and uplifting message. And there is a place for the positive. And there is a place for the encouraging. And there is a place. It's called exhortation. There's a place for that. But that's not the whole counsel of God. That's not being true to the Scripture. That's not being true to, to this beatitude. You see, it concerns me that so many today, they go to church and they hear a happy little message, and so they hear a happy little message, and certainly they want to go to heaven, so they make a happy little decision. And I put the little quotes up there, happy little decision to become a Christian, and they get involved with a happy little church, and they're just happy all the time, and they never really talk about their sin. And so I fear that dead they come to church and dead they leave. That is a scary thing. Smiling, they seek salvation, and smiling, they pray for it, but unchanged, they go, and they believe something they are not. You see, when a sinner sees the gravity of their sinfulness and the greatness of God and the mercy of the cross, their heart is broken over the sinfulness of their sin, and they mourn. And it is only in that morning that they will ever find true comfort. But they mourn. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, and I quote him, We have a double failure in the church. There is no real deep conviction of sin and a superficial conception of joy and happiness. And I think his assessment is right. And he made that assessment 40 years ago, 50 years ago. I think it's worse today. I think it's worse today. 
Um, Jesus said, Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21, Jesus said, I came to save my people from their sins. How can a person be saved from that which Christ came to save them from unless they come to face the horror of it? We don't talk about it. It's not good for our self-esteem. I'm not worried about self-esteem. Sometimes our self-esteem needs to crumble. And we need to be broken. In order that we can be made whole and right in Jesus Christ. Now that is important. That is important. Wow. Pastor Kent Hughes noted this, and I quote him. The saddest thing in life is not a sorrowing heart, but a heart that is incapable of grief over sin, for it is without grace. Without poverty of spirit, no one enters the kingdom of God. Likewise, without its emotional counterpart, counterpart, grief over sin, no one can receive the comfort of forgiveness and salvation. End quote. So the meaning of mourning here is mourning first and foremost over sin. Personal sin to begin with. That is the meaning. Now, notice the manner of this morning. The manner of this morning. This morning is not something that, well, we experience at one time and then we never mourn like this again. No, where grace has been at work in the heart, This mourning is something we experience throughout our lives as we grow in the grace and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. In this context, this mourning is a continual process. Matter of fact, the verb that is used in verse 4 it is, in, it is a verb, the verb tense is one that lets us know that this morning is not a one-time experience, but it is a continual process. It is a continual process, meaning the condition of mourning is perpetually experienced in, as we face personal sin in our lives. Martin Luther, I think, captured this in the 95 Thesis when he He made his comment that the Christian life is one that is a life of repentance. It is a life of repentance. Um, So you see, there's there's always this this morning. We see this. Paul gives us some insight into this in the book of Romans. In the book of Romans, chapter number 7. Listen to what Paul, this is Paul. This is the apostle Paul speaking here. This is the man who had his life radically transformed by Jesus on the road to Damascus. And he gets brutally honest with us in Romans 7 and then in Romans 8. Listen to what he says. In verse 21 he says, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. 
For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Verse 24, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, what I want you to see is there's a place and a point where Paul says, I cry out, wretched man am I. But he doesn't stay there. He doesn't stop there. He goes on to the great hope of Jesus Christ, who is his Savior daily, daily, day in, day out. Over in chapter 8, we read in verse 23, he says, And not only the creation... But we ourselves, who's we ourselves? That, that's those of us that are believers. We ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, what do we do? We groan. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. You know what that's talking about, right? The redemption of our bodies is referring to that thing that I refer to quite often, that great future hope of glorification. When you receive a new body where there is no more taint and pull of depravity in it. But until that day, he says, we groan, we groan, we groan, we groan, we moan, we groan with it, we suffer through it. We, we are perpetually seeing where we're not. And where we need to be, more like Christ. So, the manner of this morning, it's not a one-time thing. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a continual experience as you realize, wait a minute. That was an unkind word. I just gossiped. I just, and, and, and it should break your heart. You have grieved the heart of God. You have grieved the heart of God. So we see the meaning of this morning. We see the manner of this morning. Now let me end with the measure of this morning. When we first come to Christ, this morning predominantly has to do with the mourning that we have over our own personal sin. However, as we grow in Christ, that mourning begins to include not only our own sinfulness, but we begin to mourn over the sinfulness of others too. You see, so often we just worry about ourselves. But the more we grow, and the more we become like Christ, the more we become concerned for sin in the life of others. How it's not only grieving God, but how they are hurting themselves. They are destroying their own lives. And it should... We should mourn over that. We should be broken over that. 
We should be concerned over that. The psalmist says in Psalm 119 in verse 36, he said, Streams of tears flow down my eyes, for your law is not obeyed. Christians, there are times when we should be moved over the sinfulness of others. Mourn over how others have grieved God. You know, I, I'll be honest, I think I spend more time weeping over my own sinfulness than I do over the sinfulness of others. But there have been times I can remember crying myself to sleep, praying for my daddy on one occasion years ago because of something in his life. And it just, I was more concerned for him than for myself at that moment. And some of you understand that. And we should, we should be growing like that over people that we're not kin to being concerned over. And because that is being like Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus doesn't weep over His sin. He has no sin. He's perfect. But Jesus does weep over the sins of others. He does. You think of what Isaiah 53 says of our Lord. In Isaiah 53... Um, this is what the prophet said. In verse 3, he said, talking about Jesus, he was despised and rejected. And this is prophetically speaking, of course. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. He's a man of sorrows. He carried, he had, there was much sorrow in his heart. And we see that sorrow being expressed. And I mean, that sorrow is more than over the sins of others. But it, 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 we see the, the, the sorrow expressed over the concern of others in his own earthly ministry. Does the scripture not tell us that Jesus wept over Jerusalem because of their stubborn and rebellious heart? Do we not read in John's Gospel, chapter 11, shortest verse, I believe, in the New Testament, Jesus wept. You know why He was weeping? He wasn't weeping because Lazarus was dead. I hear people try to use that for that person. He wasn't weeping because Lazarus was dead. He was weeping because Mary and Martha had such unbelief in their heart. And he wept over it. And he weeps over the sins in our life as well. So let, let it be known. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. That is the word of the Lord. Have you experienced this kind of godly sorrow in your life? Have you? Have you experienced this?
This mourning over sin because it's an offense to God. This mourning over sin because of our personal responsibility in crucifying Christ. Mourning over the sense that we have grieved the heart of God. Have you? Well, I would say to anyone that is a lost sinner, condemned before holy God, throw yourself at the mercy of the Lord. Throw yourself at the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is your only hope. He is the only sacrifice for your sin. And then I would say to you saints, you Christians, how have you grieved Him today? How did you grieve Him last night? How did you grieve Him yesterday? And I would tell you to face it and own it and mourn over it. Because of the evil that you have done. That is what I would say to you. Face it and own it and mourn it and forsake it and so be restored by our Lord Jesus Christ who is faithful and just to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Amen. Well, I'm going to ask every head to be bowed and every eye to be closed.